0: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Come, my lady. Come, come, my lady. You're my butterfly, my sugar, my lady. I don't think that's the words. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Shosh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. Now listen to this. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. The holidays are almost done and I think that's really fun. Hey! I hate that I just did that. Nothing worse than a person singing a cappella holiday songs. Than making up their own lyrics. And this is just the worst version of people. And I encompass that. I'm, I'm perpetuating a negative cycle here by being myself. And, and I, I really... I just I just followed my own instincts in that moment. And to know... That my instincts are totally wrong and when left to my own devices, I sing holiday a cappella into a microphone makes me not only disappointed in myself, but in human beings um, as a race. You know, that I'm just sorry. I'm bringing down the stock on all of us. Um, And yeah. Guys, it's fucking Christmas tomorrow. How's it going? Tonight's Christmas Eve. Oh my god, I have a son. I have a son. That's so sweet. It's his first Christmas Eve. Holy crap. Oh man, it's gonna be sweet. He's gonna wake up tomorrow and open things and not probably... He'll be probably more fascinated with the gift wrapping and the box and whatnot. And, be a, you know, he's not gonna give a shit how much money we spend. We should probably just buy a lot of gift wrapping wrap up some cardboard boxes, and then turn it into a small fort. Is it too late for us to do that? Um, But it's so sweet. I can't wait to watch him go to bed tonight and be excited or whatever version of excitement looks like for a baby that's not even one yet. He has no real concept of what's going on. His birthday's coming up, and that too, he's not going to remember it anyway. But we'll do it, you know? We're gonna you know, the ceremony of it all, you gotta you know, you gotta do the first birthday with the kid and the cake and the smash cake. You gotta have one cake for the people, then you gotta have a smaller single cake for your baby to push his hands into, smack himself in the face with the cake and either completely overindulge or just be just be despondent and sob while a bunch of scary strangers, mostly adults, scream happy birthday into their face box for probably what feels like an eternity (laughs) think about that right like they've got a candle in front of their face in some cases you've turned the lights down because that's what you do when singing happy birthday so now this sweet baby amoeba who's been on the earth a year max is now watching a bunch of you know what would be considered a gaggle or a or a horde of scary giant humans chanting <laughs> a ominous not not scary song in the dark by candlelight into their face and they're the only ones that don't know the chant. That sounds <laughs> that sounds utterly Fucking terrifying, and I can't wait to do it. That'll be in a few days, too. My kid will turn one, and then he'll be one. So that'll be different. Um, Guys, hope the holidays are treating you well. I would imagine that many of you are off doing family things, and so perhaps, you know, less people are going to listen to this podcast because they're not in their normal routine of throwing, you know, the curious podcasts on on their way to work on a Tuesday morning. And for that, I hate and resent all of you. Or maybe just the holidays, because I don't like anything that disrupts um, my, you know, people enjoying what I do, because I want all the accolades all the time. Um, But I hope it's going well, guys. I, I, you know, the reality is, and in full transparency, I'm pre-recording this. So, (laughs) you know, listen, my engineer, Kevin, my producer, he needs a fucking holiday. All right. You savages. Well, you want to? You want him to come in on the twenty fourth to edit my po- podcast? This is not—I'm not Joe Rogan. We're not talking about Dak Shepherd numbers. You know, this is a middling podcast at best, and he is i can't ask Kevin to sacrifice his holiday with his family so that I may do something that's not pre-recorded and that feels fresh and in the moment. I can't do that. This year. Next year, that's the goal, baby. To disrupt Kevin's holiday. And you guys are going to help me get there. Spread the word. Hashtag Curious Podcast. (laughs) Sorry, Kevin. Um, Anyway, guys. On today's show, we have David Pluff. David Pluff was Obama's campaign manager, strategist. He's genius. He has his own podcast um, that's part of the Cadence 13 family that you guys should check out. And... He's a brilliant guy. I only had I had a short amount of time with him because, listen, this David pluff he's fucking impressive. The man, you know, guys like this, important guys, they don't got all the time in the world. They got places people to see. You know, who knows? I don't know who he's meeting with. Perhaps uh, whoever's going to be a 2020's candidate. Maybe he's going to put some of his magic on them and God help us, uh, you know put them over the finish line but nevertheless uh David and I had about 45 minutes together and it was great. He's a brilliant guy and actually we recorded in separate studios over one of those fancy uh ISDN telephone lines so the audio is great but if it maybe feels like there's like a slight separation it's cuz there was but um, I really appreciate David doing it. And just, you know, I said it last week, but as another quick disclaimer, I feel like obviously you guys know my politics and I tend to lean more left. Um, but the reality is, is that what I feel most passionately about is at least maybe not agreeing with but understanding the other side because I feel like right and left are both sort of guilty of... Uh, of being in our own echo chambers and with the 24-hour news cycle and Twitter and what have you, we're all getting targeted direct information that um, is complementary to the things that we like, the things that we're interested in. And I think it's important to, if not understand, at least hear both sides, um, because I know that when I'm well-informed, it helps me to make a good and informed decision. So, and that's important because I'm a... 33-year-old podcaster who lives in a coastal liberal city. Anyway, (laughs) guys, Merry Christmas. I'll talk to you before New Year's. So, you know, oh, fuck, I almost said New Year's. Happy New Year's. All my friends that were like, I'm going to be, you know, I might take some flack for this. But like all my friends that were like me growing up where we were all like, you know, we, we were all a little ghetto. All right. Listen, I, I, I. I feel weird using that word at times because I know it can be triggering, but the reality is you grow up the way I did. We were, you know, we were we were gutter rat, hood rat kids, and it felt like we would always take the piss out of each other when one of the guys would be like, yo, bro, happy new years. And you're like, is it plural? Are we, are we celebrating many years or just in the next one? Because if so, it would just probably be happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year. Anyway. Merry Christmas. Let me give a quick shout-out to Santa. Santa, get your fucking head in the game, boss. It's your day. It's time. Get those elves right. I want you to put a little... I want you to... I Listen, the reindeer are going to need a little something, okay? So you're going to have to get one of the vets from the racetracks, you know, the shady vets. I don't want to mention any names, but get Leo or Tony to give a little... Shoot a little fucking of that good stuff in the Rudolph, all right? Just a little, I'm talking 50 to 100 cc's of some performance-enhancing drug because, Rudolph, you are on today, my boy. There are no takebacks, okay? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you want? 2019 was the one year that you guys didn't get it right. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. It's probably hectic in the North Pole right now. I'm sure there is a lot of passive-aggressive outbursts going on amongst the higher-ups. Um, Mrs. Claus is fucking over, Santa. She's like, how many more years are we going to do this, Nick? Fuck. It's, I'm freezing over here. Can we please? Why don't we... Let's relocate the pole. Let's relocate Santa's workshop to either Turks and Caicos, Fort Lauderdale... Or I'll settle on Myrtle Beach, but this is ridiculous. We can make toys in South Florida. Damn, look. What are we doing up here in the poles? This is. Amazon doesn't even have Prime up here. It's ridiculous. And that was my fun Santa bit. So you can put that in the bank of uh, mediocrely funny bits of mine. Anyway, guys, <laughs> I love you. Merry Christmas.
0: Got your happy price, Priceline.
1: Thanks, David. Great to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Um, I see that you are a University of Delaware alumni.
2: I sure am. Joe Biden, Chris Christie, Joe Flacco. There's a few of us out there.
1: I just performed there last month, and I was greeted with the fun fact of uh, smallest state, or I'm sorry, second smallest state, first state.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we got just under the wire as the first to sign the Declaration of Independence. All right, a lot to be proud of. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, we were the first to ratify the Constitution. Uh, We did have plenty of Really important folks signing the declaration as well. Yeah, right. It uh, It is. And, you know, you were Delaware, so our nickname is the Fightin' Blue Hens. That's not fighting blue hens. It's fightin' with no G. And uh, I always thought that the school should, uh, you know, we actually are like football team has essentially the same uniforms the University of Michigan Uh, It would be great to throw that uh, blue hen on our helmets and on the front of our basketball and field hockey uniforms. So it would help with the merch game, I think.
1: Well, in speaking to some of the current students there, they sort of conveyed to me that your football team is perhaps, these are
2: not my words, of course, lacking. (laughs) (laughs) I think this year we are lacking. I think ranked in the beginning and then the the wheels have come off. Um, Very
1: nice. So since I don't have you for too long, I got to ask on behalf of all Democrats out there. um, Can you can you reassure us, David, because we're scared. We're so scared.
2: Well, I think you're right to be scared because the prospect of eight years of Trump versus four. It's not like double the damage. I think it'll be a compounding effect. So. Um, This is a a winnable race. I mean, we know there's enough people out there if we can get them registered and motivated. We know we can win back some of the swing voters we need to to win. There's plenty of arguments against Trump. Um, You know, uh, no shortage of of compelling arguments against his reelection. But I think it's going to be a really tough race. Um, This is not a national race. So this really comes down to a handful to to six or seven battleground states. I think in those states, Trump is going to register, you know, everybody he can Um, And there's a lot of people who look just like the Trump base that aren't registered. I think there's a mythology that voter registration, you know, only benefits Democrats. That's not true, uh, certainly in in battleground states. And I think he's going to drive great turnout. I think he's leveraging impeachment to do both of those things. You know, this is your reason to register. This is your reason to vote. This is your reason to volunteer. So what concerns me is I think when you look at the number of votes Trump should be able to produce for himself. In states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, they're going to be higher than they were in 16. Now, still plenty of people out there for us to win, but we need a candidate in a campaign who can do a few things. They need to you know, motivate 18- and 19-year-olds to get involved and vote, um, really drive turnout in, in – uh, amongst Latinos and African Americans in big ways, and win back, you know, exurban and, and 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 rural, and and certainly maximize our suburban vote. So, so we need a a, a player that's got a bunch of different tools <laughs> um, uh, to to win this. Um, and presidential elections historically, the incumbent does have advantages. Um, they get to prepare for the race for a very long time. Trump is advertising heavily in the battleground states. Uh, already. Uh, They're going to enter the general election with a much better sense than their Democratic opponent of what the pathway is there for them, because our candidates are, you know, running around uh, trying to beat each other to get the nomination. So, um, you know, Trump doesn't enter this election with a particularly strong hand, low approval ratings. He has shown no interest or ability to grow his political base. Um, So, so, I mean, I think you'd rather be the Democrat than Trump, but I think this is going to be a really close race. So I guess my message is, on the night of November 3rd, the last thing any of us want to do is think we could have done more. So this is kind of all on us. We can't sit back and say, well, our candidate's going to be great, or they're going to be a savior, or they'll figure it out. Like, I hope they do. But all of us who can register voters, give money, uh, post social media uh, content, create our own content, like we got to get in the game, because I think this is going to be close. So um, we better act accordingly. And is that, David, when when we get down to brass tacks, because God
1: knows that over the last two years, we've seen so much, I don't want to call it centrifuge, but we've seen, and granted, I'm looking at it from, from the eyes of a liberal, right? But so much compelling evidence in which to feel as though President Trump is not built for the job. And yet- to your and what I've heard a lot is it's going to be much closer than we ever thought and more people are going to show up for Trump than ever. Is it because when we really, really get down to it, it's just about people's fucking pocketbook. And if the economy is going all right,
2: there's a good chance they're going to keep them in. Well, we live in such a, a strongly divided country, so I'd start there, right? I mean, you probably – what is Trump's absolute floor, 42 44%? What's the floor for a Democratic candidate? You know, maybe it's the same, slightly higher. So so the vast majority of the people in the country are voting for one party in every election. Mm. So there, there's there's a narrow bound of play. Um, so so I think, um, you know, you could ask the question, why is Trump not at 35, 36? I mean, no Republican would be. I mean, you know, and so and I think he does stoke very well this. They're all socialists and. You know, they want to change the country and you won't recognize the country. And, um, you know, he obviously is someone who I don't think historically has never been a strong believer in the Second Amendment or even, you know, as a pro-life candidate. He's adopted those positions because he thinks they're helpful politically. So I think, you know, his base, they see him as, um, you know, one, I mean, listen, the Supreme Court, there's a chance whoever wins the next presidential election, you know, uh, has one or two. So think about that. A lot of Trump's base loves Kavanaugh. So man, man, they can get one or two more Kavanaughs. That's going to be pretty motivational. So so but I think on the pocketbook issue what this comes down to is we need to convince a bunch of people out there in those battleground states that you know, he's Trump's not been good for them. You know, he's he's looked after people like himself, the super wealthy at your expense. The trade war helps with that. Um there, you know, manufacture we already in 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 Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, we are technically in a manufacturing recession. Like, that's the one thing Trump promised. I'm going to bring back jobs. Now we're in a manufacturing recession that he's caused. So we have a lot of economic ammunition um, because so much of this, you know, one of the frustrating things for me in 16 was Trump won the argument over Clinton on, you know, who was going to fight for people like you. I mean, the guy who lives in, you know, the gold plated Trump Tower, who clearly, um, you know, was completely full of it. Um, was going to take care of his wealthy Wall Street friends no matter what he said. He won that debate, I think, because people saw him as an outsider and kind of, you know, someone who would take it to the system. But, you know, the evidence is pretty clear here that economically, uh, all he's done is advantage people like him. And whether it's on health care coverage um, you know, less education funding. Um, we actually now have the biggest deficit since World War II, and that was during World War II, right? And there's some voters who are concerned about that. So I think that um, we've got a lot of ammunition. But but he enters this race, anybody would, you know, with with a with a healthy vote number. And so this is all going to come down to those those small number of voters in the middle. Can we win enough of them? And then who does the best job maximizing their turnout? And I think there's a very dangerous. Of uh, kind of false debate in the Democratic Party, like you have to choose. you you can't mathematically. You can't get enough votes just from the base in these states or from a persuasion swing universe. You've got to have a candidate who can get enough of both. Um, and you know, this is gonna sound a little bit uh, probably like I'm uh, fanboying my former boss, but I think as as time passes, you know, even I, who was in the middle of it, maybe didn't fully appreciate Barack Obama's political strengths because he could win enough vote in rural areas, you know, the black guy from Chicago, and really drive turnout in urban areas and on college campuses. And, you know, we need a a candidate who's able to do that. And that's what I'm looking closely for. I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for yet in the primary. Um, I want to make sure we have, elect somebody who could be a good president. That's still to me most important. But who can put together the kind of coalition to beat Trump, particularly if Trump is getting you know, outsized turnout, which, you know, there may never be a guy like Trump on the ballot again. So if he's your cup of tea, this is your chance, uh, you know, to keep him away from the socialist hordes. So, you know, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of motivation out there on his side. But, you know, it's it's
1: interesting. And, I, and I'm, I, I'd love to hear your take on this in that You know, I look at the Democratic debate, even when it's, you know, 20 people. I mean, it's literally enough people for a full NBA-sized basketball team, the amount of (laughs) candidates we have. But I look at that stage and I think, God, even maybe half or, you know, five of these people, I would be more than happy to have as my president and respect. And then I look at, you know, you look at the top three. And I think that all Democrats are doing this game of caveat, which is, Biden, incredible guy, what a record. God, he gaffes a lot. Or Elizabeth Warren, brilliant, but uh, maybe it's a little too extreme. Or even Mayor Pete, who I love, then people always say, well, he's young and maybe not enough experience, in quotes. And so uh, my fear is that we lack a candidate who's galvanized the party to where we can all truly get behind. Now, is that just a result of that we're in the primaries and maybe once we have one person, we'll come around? Or, or do you think that's sort of been an issue amongst the candidates?
2: It's a great question, Josh. I, I think it's largely just because we're in it. I mean, um, careful about making any predictions, but I, I do think it's very likely that whoever comes out of this is going to look stronger than anybody currently looks now because they will have won. You know, they will have vanquished the field. They would have built on their coalition. They'll show, uh, you know, political strength. So, so I think um, let's just remember that. You know, whether it's next April or next June, God forbid it, you know, goes to the convention. But there's going to be somebody who won. One of these candidates will have won, and 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 so I think the least of our problems, in my view will be, does the supporters of all the primary candidates, you know, who are very politically engaged people compared to the rest of the country and the rest of the electorate, um, you know, come together in sufficient numbers behind her nominee? I, th- I think they will. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned the top three. Uh, it very well may be, you know, and, and I would add Bernie Sanders to that. You know, there's kind of a top four now. But, you know, some of the other candidates, um, you know, particularly there's a big event in Iowa this weekend where... You know, historically, candidates who, who who overperform can get some momentum. I think the race really doesn't become real until January, right before Iowa, New Hampshire. So, and I think there's going to be a lot of fluidity. So, um, but but I think right now, yeah, we're we're kind of like doing a practical logical exam on these candidates, and no one is the political savior. Well, first of all, like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, or on the Republican side, Reagan and Bush weren't, didn't weren't viewed as political saviors. People thought they had tons of weaknesses. So, so again, I, I think when somebody wins and they're the person standing, uh, you know, on the stage with Trump, they will look stronger. Um, and, and so I, I'd be less concerned about, like, can they pull everybody together who is part of the primary? Because, again, those tend to be more committed Democrats, activists. It's like the general election is a completely different audience. It is largely... Uh, hard to reach, disinterested citizens. So on on the Democratic base side, it's people you're trying to register or turn out who really aren't following the race. Didn't vote in the primaries, you know, hard to turn out. And then a lot of the swing voters also um, are not consumed by politics or government. And so that's one of the challenges. I've done this turn before. The primary... You know, you're really talking to people who are following the race day to day and reading things and consuming videos and learning about delegates. <laughs> and then you go to the general election and it's like, you know, half the people don't even know you that well, even though you've been running for president for a year and a half. So, so I think it's really important to, to – to, uh, and, and I don't think that's overly, you know, optimistic on my part. I think whoever comes out of this thicket will have shown something. It's a big field with a bunch of support kind of distributed amongst a bunch of candidates and the person who can navigate through that and become the the leader and the winner, um, I think we will all feel a lot better about them on the back end.
1: Do you think that and I don't know the answer to this because I tend to lean, you know, more center left um, in the vein of a of a Barack Obama or what we saw in Hillary Clinton and, and what I think Joe Biden would be. And I hear the debate amongst the Democrat Democratic Party because I tend to think, well, someone who's more towards the middle, like a Joe Biden, has such a better chance because he's perhaps not introducing such new ideas. To, to voters that perhaps would polarize them. And then I'll hear other people say, enough of this trying to appease both sides. We need to double down on the progressive liberal agenda with someone like Bernie or Elizabeth so that we can really get through the things we need. Like, let's take a stand because we've tried to have that candidate that appeases both sides and it just doesn't work. Like, what do you think?
2: Well, you know, you know, Barack Obama was a leftist center candidate who did awfully well in two presidential elections. So, yeah. um, again, I think – well, first of all, I think – so So to win the election against Trump, you, you do need somebody – so there are, you know, not an insignificant number of voters in these battleground states, enough of them who say, you know what, I'm inclined now to vote against Trump, whether they voted for him last time or they voted for Hillary or they voted third party or didn't vote, like – Listen all things being equal if I think there's an alternative I'm comfortable with I'm voting against Trump so we need enough of those voters for sure and so that's where you may say a safer choice like a Biden is 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 is, is the better home but we also need to turn out young people and we've got to you know drive hopefully historic turnout amongst African Americans and Latinos and really continue to build our vote share advantage with suburban college educated women so so that's the the challenge is that's where I think it's overly simplistic and and so, yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit concerned because I'm not sure I see right now somebody who can do all of those things exceedingly well. But I think when they come out of the primary, they will be stronger. Um, and so, um, but, but that's important. I, I think this notion that we need one or the other. We need someone who can win the middle but not excite young people or minority voters. That doesn't sound like we're going to win in that scenario. Or someone who's just going to drive excitement, you know, with the base. And the hell with these Trump-Obama voters or Romney-Clinton voters. We don't need them. I mean, those people fail simple math class. Right. Because, you know, let's look at Wisconsin. Hillary lost Wisconsin by 23,000 votes. Remember, Trump won it with only 46.2 percent of the vote. Um, and she did get 29,000 votes in Milwaukee City than Obama did. So you'd say, well, get all those and you win. Like, do we really want to have a margin of error of 6,000? She got 250,000 less votes than Obama in, you know, blue collar and exurban in rural areas. So, you know, you need to maximize turnout. So get those 29,000 people in Milwaukee and maybe add to it. That would be great. Do the same thing in Madison where the University of Wisconsin is. But you also need to get back some of those voters that fled, um, you know, we there were some from some swings from 2012 to 2016 counties that swung 30 or 40 points. Think about that, you know, where maybe, you know, Obama lost 55, 45 and, you know, Clinton lost 75, 25. So so we cannot um, numerically sustain those kind of losses. Um, we can make up a lot of them with like huge registration, huge turnout in urban areas. But we have to do it all. And so that's, you know, again, I'm probably going to personally vote for the person that I think would be the best president who inspires me. But, you know, as a former practitioner, I'm definitely going to have my eye to who do I think can put together that kind of coalition. And it's hard for a Democrat to win the White House uh, in an electoral college system, because in a lot of these states, there are more conservatives and liberals. And Republicans tend to get easier turnout than we do. So they start closer to the finish line. There's enough people out there to allow us to, to push past them and win But I think sometimes we um, and again, I think we might have, you know, we lived through the Obama years where he was able to put together that coalition and get over 51 percent of the vote twice. So you might assume, well, given all the demographic changes in the country, we're going to win the White House going forward all the time. Doesn't work that way. Um, And so, um, you know, Trump obviously has such severe limitations as a candidate. I mean, he hasn't shown any interest or ability to grow his base. So he's clearly going to just double down and and you know if if you if you want to get if you want to stay up at night and not sleep and and worry about losing you really just have to look at what happened in Ohio in 2004 where John Kerry actually did a great job of getting out his vote got more votes than Al Gore did in 2000 um but you know George Bush uh, turned out conservatives uh, in historic numbers in part because there was a ballot initiative there uh, banning gay marriage and that was a reason a lot of of republicans who hadn't currently participated today did. So that that's like, you know, that's my caution is if Trump does a great job of maxing his vote, he's not going to do great with swing voters. He'll compete for them. But um, our degree of difficulty just goes up. So, you know, we have to have a candidate who who can pick votes from those very different buckets. You know, a 19 year old um, on the Madison campus needs to register and vote and volunteer. You know, a 21-year-old non-college African-American male in Milwaukee needs to register, vote, and volunteer. And we've got to win back the 58-year-old iron worker who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. You've got to do all those things. Um, and, and, and that's what makes this hard. But again, I'd still rather be us than Trump, but I, I think this is going to be closer than, than people would like.
1: So what do you think, how do we get a guy like Trump, right? Because I was having this conversation with a buddy the other day and I th- I said There's no way that the world changed in the last two and a half years in the respect of we s- it seems more divisive It seems more polarized than ever and people whom perhaps I don't agree with politically or ideology uh, uh, Believe in their ideology I'm still able to have a good relationship with but it seems like the idea of having some sort of compromise or or being able to look at things from both sides is an impossibility. And so my question is there's no way that this was sprung out of nowhere, right? This is ha- this has to have been a slow burn and I would imagine both sides are a bit to blame. So where where does a guy like this come from if not from years and years of people feeling as though they're either myth- misrepresented or not being heard? Is is am I right in my thinking?
2: I think you are, Josh. Like, yeah, I don't think Trump created the conditions for his rise and win. He he just tapped into them. And he's accelerating them. I mean, some of the things that he and his team say around impeachment, you know, this is a coup d'etat and it's going to tear the country apart. And, you know, they, um, they are suggesting some pretty dark things. Um, and But, but yeah, so, listen, I think I, – I don't think you can both sides of this. I mean, I think, you know, Democrats for the most part – want to govern in a responsible way, they want to, you know, pass legislation that helps people, um, they respect our our institutions. Um, you know, I think, I think that's being tested on the Republican side. But I do think, you know, one of the challenges in both parties in our society is, you know, when someone, you know, takes an unorthodox position politically or, you know, decides they want to work with an unusual bedfellow, you get a lot of criticism, uh, particularly on social media. And, you know, the truth is, if we're going to make progress, uh, you know, there's a lot of things a president can do through executive order. But, you know, you need legislation to, to make a lot of the progress we need. Like that's going to require votes from both parties, support from both parties. And so the demonization does concern me. I mean, I, when I worked in the White House, um, you know, it was always interesting. You know, Republicans who, who tried to work with us on things, you know, would get pounded almost like they were a traitor. And oftentimes, you know, they would scurry back because they didn't like that. Um, and, you know, Obama, you know, when we we try to do some tough things on the budget that by definition, a lot of progressives didn't agree with all of it. But you were trying to do it with the Republican Congress. You know, we got deep criticism. And so, you know, actually, President Obama spoke about this yesterday at a, at a summit I was at in Chicago, um, you know, where he took some issue with the sort of woke cancel culture that's out there. Woke cancel culture, excuse me. Um, where I do think that just firing off criticism on social media, um, you know, is not organizing. That's not activism. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean we we tolerate misogyny or we tolerate economic policy that's going to screw the poor and help the rich. I mean, so so the compromise is not by definition weakness. I mean, It should be, what's the pathway forward to get something done? And sometimes you're not going to be able to work with the other party. Um, Sometimes you can. And I think we need elected officials who are strong enough to withstand that. In both the Democratic and Republican parties today in Congress, far more of them fear losing in a primary uh, than in a general election. So when they do get criticized from the right, um, you know, for breaking bread with somebody from the other party or, you know, working with them on an issue... Um, you know, they immediately get criticized. Well, they need to get a primer. You know, we need to have purity tests. It's very, uh, I don't have an answer for it. This is one of the things that makes me feel uh, pretty depressed about where we are today in our society and politics, because I do think, and social media obviously intensifies this, um, but, you know, we who's to blame we're to blame? Like, if we don't reward people Who step out and maybe take a position we don't agree with, even though we agree with them on 90 percent of the things or that tries to compromise uh, or who doesn't try and decapitate their political opponent at every, every like if we don't reward those people, then it's on us. So I think we all have to get better. If that's what we cherish. And, and some don't. Some people want us to be in a constant state of political warfare. It's a zero sum game. But I think the majority of the American people don't believe that. Well, it's on us to get more involved and more active. And, and, and again, even if we might disagree with what the person's doing, say, you know what, I trust that person. We see it differently, but they're a person of integrity. And, 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 and so but, – but today's politics, today's social media environment um, really does not reward that. So I think you're you're smart to ask that question and and ultimately I don't know if there's a circuit breaker out there that's going to change this. I mean I went through, you know, the Obama uh, first few uh, months, you know, we were this close to teetering into a global depression. And you know, the Republican party, you know, in uh, in a unanimous fashion said we're not going to work with him on anything for two reasons one so that we weaken him politically and two i mean if we if we agree with barack obama on things then he's going to look like a moderate and we want to paint him as kind of a left-wing socialist so um you know even at a time where the country was in the deepest crisis we've been in you know since the great depression in in the 30s uh, and late 20s Um, You know, the other party decided so. So. So I don't think these things are an equal measure. I I think the Democratic Party tends to be more responsible (laughs) uh, and and does have that responsibility gene. But I think the the activists in both parties really do not um, reward um, or even allow to some extent, um, you know, that kind of you know, occasional compromise or occasional of I'm going to challenge this orthodoxy in my party because I do not agree with it. So uh, I do worry about that.
1: Is there a part of you as a, as a brilliant campaign manager that kind of wants, that would want to say to someone like Bernie, like, why don't you just say, I'm not a socialist, I'm Bernie Sanders, and I'm running for president. Like, I'm not, you can throw all these titles on me in an effort to polarize my audience and to isolate people away from believing in my message. But at the end of the day, like, you're not going to put any weird title on me. I'm
2: Bernie Sanders, I'm me, and I'm running for president. Like, it seems like a messaging issue, David. Well, but, but Bernie is a socialist, and he... He is proud of that and embraces it. So I think in in that case it would be disingenuous for him. But I think generally, yeah, candidates should be careful careful about having labels attached to them, um, and and that's kind of a, I think, I think that has become more prominent, you know, uh, with the media these days, which is what's the shorthand we can define somebody as. So so I think in Bernie's case, you know, he's been a socialist his entire political life. He's proud of that. It's clearly Uh, I I think a contrast he wants to drive with Elizabeth Warren um, saying, I'm a a socialist, she's a capitalist. So, so I think in this case, I I, I think Bernie's doing what he should do, which is owning who he is. But, but I think generally, um, you know, candidates, um, you know, the labels don't really help. Okay. So as a campaign manager, does the electoral college bum you out? (laughs) Well, I've certainly (laughs) been convinced as a citizen over time. I mean, I will say this, like, uh, it'd be a very much different race so if if i was running a presidential campaign in a popular vote system um, you know i'd spend all my time trying to maximize my vote uh, share well more my turnout in los angeles in the bay area in houston um you know in miami-dade uh, in new york city in all the boroughs in chicago so um it's a different race and you know republicans would be trying to maximize so the middle would still matter, but it'd matter less. So, so, I think there's some negatives to how the race would be run. But I think it's hard to argue that, you know, I think the electoral college um, has long outlived its usefulness, um and we ought to go to a simple whoever gets the most votes in this country gets to lead the country. That would be great. Um, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, if ever, but, you know, I hope it does. So, so I don't think it's worth spending any time worrying about it because we have to win by the rules. So you know, game seven of the World Series tonight, it's not how many hits you get; it's how many runs you get. You know, and so so the electoral college is all that matters. So we need to nominate someone who can get to 270 electoral votes. Um, by the way, there's a chance that you know our nominee could win the popular vote this time by five, six, seven million and still lose. So that'll be right. you know doubly frustrating. But but. But if that, you know, if if you're running that campaign, you know, it really is, okay, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina, I hope Florida, you know, Trump's going to try and put pressure on in Minnesota, maybe in Nevada, maybe in New Hampshire, Uh, our nominee, I'm sure we'll look at a state like Georgia, for instance, maybe Texas. So but you got to really be thoughtful about that. um, Because you're your 350th electoral vote, you know, doesn't matter as much as your 270th. So, what is your most likely pathway? And and that's basically our presidential campaigns are a series of of gubernatorial races. That's what they are. Uh, it's not a national campaign. And so, as frustrating as that may be, and I think there's no doubt we're at a period now where the electoral college does benefit um, Republicans uh, more than Democrats. Um, we have to win by those rules until we change them. So that's certainly my message to people is, you know, there's efforts to, you know, at the at state legislative level to um, move to a popular vote system. You should support those. But but you should provide all your energy as it relates to the presidential election to helping us win those battleground states. So if you live in one of those states, get more involved, become a precinct captain, a volunteer leader. If you're close to one of those states, travel to them. Uh, you know, if you're not phone bank into those states, write postcards. Um, we all have to have those states in mind, um, so so it does as a citizen frustrate me, um, but it is um, the only avenue to getting rid of Donald Trump is two hundred seventy electoral votes, and in my view is how bad will we feel if we get fall short of that and win by five or six million votes? So let's not you know let's not that have that fate descend on us. Let's win it all. When so
1: okay, it's election night two thousand eight. What is? the moment is it a major news channel confirming it how do you know when to start celebrating like truly celebrating like oh god they can't take it away now we friggin we did
2: this well it's a great question so even though we live in a digital age and we all stare at our phones too much you know certainly for me personally it's still television right so you need those network you know anchors to say, we have breaking news. Barack Obama has been elected president or re-elected president. Conversely, in 16, you know, Donald Trump has won. So that's when it's real. Now, of course, you know, whatever the polls say, your own data, you know, you have a pretty good sense of, of where the election stands heading into an election. But elections are funky. We were just surprised by one in 16. You know, we still get surprised by the weather, by sports, by politics. So you really uh, don't begin to to have any confidence about how you're doing Till you start to see real precinct votes being tabulated, right? So, you know, Florida, uh, you know, and Virginia both, um, you know, tend to begin reporting results. And in, in, in some parts of the state, early, you see that in Indiana, you can begin to get a sense of okay, here's how many votes we thought we'd get in this this precinct or in this county, and you begin to see that, and is it consistent with what you thought or not? So, so you you know, you have a sense obviously earlier in the night. But it really isn't until, you know, that moment where, you know, our network, uh, you know, talent on, both on cable and, and still on broadcast say it, that it becomes real. You, for me, I've always had to see that. So even though I have my, like, data and I've got all the results coming in, I'm like, oh, we're going to win. So in a way it was clear they were going to call it right at 11 o'clock Eastern. It didn't really become real, <laughs> you know, uh, until it was it was called by the news media. So, um, uh but, you know, I, I've been surprised by elections many times in the past, so so you're always nervous. So even though it was viewed in 08 that Obama was going to win and win by some margin, none of us acted that way. We all assumed something funky could happen. And then in 2012, conversely, where – I don't know if you remember, like, you know, the morning of the election, all the morning shows were like dead heat could go either way. Um, you know, we felt pretty confident that we had a significant um, – small but, but significant edge the battleground states – but you know that's what our data showed but we were super you know until you start seeing vote real vote being counted and unpacked um, you can't um you know have any assumptions so you should be um absolutely um you know steely confident in your operation on election day you want to go into election assuming you've done everything you can so but but you know you you're you're super nervous uh until votes start getting counted
1: and doesn't the moment that it's The win is confirmed.
2: Isn't there a Secret Service detail that shows up for the president-elect? Well, the the candidates, so this time, you know, our Democratic nominee will already have Secret Service protection. But, you know, the moment they become the um, president-elect, it is fascinating. Like, it changes. You know, there's more, you know, guns around. There's more intensity. You've got foreign leaders calling. So, you know, for us, here's Barack Obama, somebody I knew, you know, when he was a state senator. Um, you know, he becomes president, um, and in a in a in a in just a moment, um, things change. There's more sobriety, the secret service standing more upright, there's more of them. There's more security. The types of conversations he's having on the phone change overnight. So, it is fascinating to see how quickly that happens. So, it's more of an evolution. Uh, because nominees, you know, have pretty serious uh, protection and, and protective detail, um, but it but it does um, it does change right overnight. And how quickly did um, did Senator McCain call President Obama? Oh, he called. You know, when it was clear. Um, I, I can't remember if he called right after Ohio was called in in two thousand and eight, but but soon after that, and obviously gave you know, a remarkably gracious and important speech uh, about what it meant to the country to, to break the racial barrier. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the questions. I mean, if we are fortunate enough to beat Donald Trump uh, and he gets declared the loser on election night, how's he going to handle that? Will he even concede? Will he contest the election results? Will he give a speech? Will he call? Um, you know, I, I don't think we should assume anything. Um, so, So, again, that's always important. I mean, we historically... I mean, Romney, you know, I thought Romney's speech was, was fine. Um, I think McCain's was quite gracious. Uh, you know, I thought that John Kerry's uh, was gracious. Al Gore, I think, did an amazing job, you know, once the Supreme Court finally uh, ruled. Uh, Bob Dole, like, that's always been a, a moment that most of our presidential candidates have met. Um, now, they may the next day go back to, you know, trying to decapitate the person they lost to. But the message they send is 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 gracious and unifying and important. You know, Trump, again, like he he is such the outlier on so many things. Um, I certainly wouldn't expect any grace notes from him uh, on a, on election night that goes south for him. Let's just hope he actually leaves on his own accord, David. <laughs> well, that is. Yeah. I mean, so maybe I'm just, you know, getting old and, and too naive about institutions like I just at the end of the day you know, if it's clear we won and, you know, you know, if I'm sure it will be if we have, um, you know, members of Congress, Supreme Court, judiciary, like that is, you know, that is such a fundamental um, uh, breach. Now, we've seen many through. So, you know, you might just say that's a natural evolution. What's so different about that than so many other things he's done? But um, you know i think that uh, and listen for me as a as a democrat who who lives in fear of a second trump term um, you know the things i imagine are you know his prede- his his predecessor uh, i'm sorry his successor you know taking the oath, oath of office delivering an inauguration speech with a defeated one term president trump standing there seething you know getting on you know the helicopter to take him to the airport to fly him back to new york or you know Florida, wherever the hell he's going to go. Like, these are really important images to me. You know, Trump giving a concession speech or not. I'll take it either way. So I um, um, I think it's really important in these elections, if you're going to work hard on something, to have those kind of motivations um, in front of you. Like, imagine what it would be like. I, and conversely for me, imagine what it's like if he walks out, um, you know, to some ballroom Uh, you know, early in the morning of November 4th with his grifter family and says, thank you, America, for a second term. Right. I mean, how, uh, I can't fathom that, but uh, I think we need to, you know, we need to think about those positive images and those negative images, you know, to keep us going. So I only have two
1: more questions so I can get you out of here, but, and I will give the, uh, I will qualify that I saw this on a TV show, a great one, House of Cards, but, you know, (laughs) I remember in the first season, um, there's a presidential candidate and he's sitting there and he's sitting in front of a guy who has the air of like a fixer, like a a Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. And basically what he says is, listen to me, if you're going to be the candidate, I need to know it all. I need to know if you ever cheated on your wife. I need to know if you've ever done cocaine. I need to know everything. Is there some version of a moment like that with a candidate for president where in just not in a nefarious nature where someone like you would just say, listen, whatever it is, I need to know now so that we can
2: be prepared for it to come out? Yeah, you do. Now, of course, you know, a lot. Most people run for president. Not all. Trump was an exception to this. But, you know, they've been through races already. So there's been vetting, right, of your finances and your social media and your voting record, if you if you've been in office, uh, if you're an executive mayor or governor, so you look at all that. So there generally is some pre-existing work, and and you have a sense of what the vulnerabilities are. But yeah, you've got to ask people, like where where the bodies are buried, um, and and where you think there could be some vulnerability. And you know, my history, uh, you know, in politics suggests that most people you know, aren't completely honest in those moments, (laughs) (laughs) or they don't share the entire story, or they've rationalized in their own head. Well, that's not an issue. Well, it's not your job to decide what's an issue. So yeah, I mean, you you want to listen, one of the mistakes we made in in the 2008 campaign, you might recall, is our campaign hadn't looked at every uh, the video of every sermon that Reverend Jeremiah Wright gave. Right. We were completely surprised when they came out. Like, you don't want to be surprised in politics. I mean, you don't want to be surprised in business, in sports. Like, to the extent you're mapping out your plays um, and understanding where your vulnerabilities are, you want to kind of have played that out, that chess match. So, yeah, that's real. I mean, I mean it, you, you know, again, usually there's already a foundation of, like, you've been through a tough race and your taxes were an issue or your divorce was an issue or... You know, one of your big fundraisers is kind of, you know, sketchy and you went through a lot of attacks on that in your center race. So, like, you, you, you know, it's usually you're not starting from scratch. So if it's somebody who's never run before, then you are starting from scratch. Um, and, you know, you know, what you want to do is say, hey, we're going to have a team of people basically uproot your life um, and, and understand where um, the tripwires are um and what's the best way to respond to them or whether we should respond the best way to respond to them so so that is so yeah nothing on house and cards is real but that's more real than not you you have to do that
1: and i would imagine there are moments in which that happens and something's discovered where maybe not in your experience but maybe a, a peer has had to say to that candidate i don't i don't feel comfortable moving forward
2: this is too egregious or this is going to hurt our chances too much Oh, yeah, no, that that definitely happens. Um you know, the thing that happens more often, though, is somebody who's decided to either run for office for the first time or they're in an office and they want to seek a higher office, and you know, you ask them why, And they'll say, "Well, isn't that why I'm hiring someone like you?" And right. those are the people you need to run really far away from really fast. like the, the 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 why you're seeking an office, what you do with that office, what your core message is, how that differs with your opponent. That all has to come from the candidate. That's you know now you can then decide like well let's is there a better way to message your idea or you know let's understand uh, from an electorate standpoint who's supportive of that who's not like that's where polling comes in uh, and other measurement but like the core you know reason that somebody's running their message their important set of issues has to come from them so that's the thing that actually happens more often is you've got people who you know are kind of empty vessels who, you know, say, well, you tell me, what will will help me win? And those people shouldn't run, they shouldn't win, and I certainly, you know, don't want to work for them. Excellent. Well, I
1: I don't want to keep you... The only last question I have, which I ask everyone on the pod, so you can give me a 20-second answer, is, what are your one or two commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? You can just give us one, and then you can get out of here.
2: In life or politics, or both... Uh,
1: it's a commandment. So you have to decide what's more important.
2: Um, well, one is just try hard, work hard effort. And you probably hear that a lot. Certainly something that's, you know, was imparted to me from my father and, and generally, um, you know, I've learned through life, um, that there's no substitute for just working hard. Um, and if you work really hard, you know, you tend to get luck and and good things uh, tend to happen. Uh, And I think the other one is just trying to treat people well. Um, You know, I think that uh, uh, no matter who they are, um, you know, long time friend, you know, the person who you run into when you're checking out a hotel room who's going to clean your room, uh, you know, your, your Uber driver, uh, your state senator, like, I just think, you know, life's really hard for a lot of people. People are always going through stuff, and I think that uh, that's really important, Um, you know, to treat people well um, and, you know, to trust people. I guess I'm giving you more than one, but certainly in politics, um, for me, the best campaigns I were involved with were ones where there was just trust, where you just gave people a lot of rope uh, and a lot of room uh, to make some magic happen. A lot of those are really young people. And, you know, you just trust that they're going to make good decisions and work really hard and, um, you know, build good relationships with people in communities. And so that was, you know, for me, um, you know, listen, there's plenty of successful organizations where there's a ton of micromanagement and yelling and, you know, every situation is different. But at the end of the day, I think you want to, you know, you want to hire good people uh, in the right roles um, and trust them to do their job. Because you know, particularly when it's a mission-driven thing, people care about it. You know, they they want to win. They want to, you know, help their issue succeed. They want to help their candidate succeed. You know, if you're working in a startup, you you might have same kind of passion. Um, so I, I just think um, uh, micromanagement um, can really be so uh, destabilizing and demoralizing. So that's and you know, have I been burned by that? Sure. You know, you're always going to get burned by things, whatever your, you know, truth is. So for me, it's like, you don't trust people till they show they can't be trusted. So I think that's incredibly important.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate
2: your time. Thanks, Josh. Uh, And I'm glad you got to Delaware. And it was great to talk to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Bye bye. See you. Boom. Shaka la Yes that was david thank you man so much for doing the podcast thank you guys hope you have an awesome holiday and uh yeah i mean it's that time of year and i'm feeling a little uh rever- reverential i'm feeling uh reflective i'm feeling very lucky and in full disclosure oh wait before i say that i just want to say really quick uh david pluff's podcast is called oh. campaign hq so make sure you subscribe to that but Anyway guys, I just want to be fully transparent and say, and I don't do this a lot, I love doing this podcast, I love podcasts in general, they bring me a lot of joy and I spend a lot of time listening to them and the fact that I get to do this and speak to people that I would never have the opportunity to otherwise and share it with an audience who, um, from what I've heard, for the most part, enjoy it um, and even in a small way, can get some version of relief or just a a little bit of a reprieve from their day-to-day makes me feel very lucky. and I really appreciate you guys for listening. Thank you so much. I wouldn't be able to do it without you. Merry Christmas. See you next week. Bye.